If you would, take your copy of Scripture, open it up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We'll be continuing on our study through Colossians, focusing on the second half of this portion, verses 18 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, just to get the whole context of the passage. Please follow along as I read. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you for your excellent singing today. In ancient Rome, there was set up in the center of Rome a golden milestone. Um, this is a, uh, obviously an artist's rendition of it, but this was the starting point for the vast Roman Empire. Every milestone throughout the Roman Empire was measured from this point. Uh, here's a picture of what's left of it today. It was the predominant, preeminent milestone in all of Rome. In the same way today in our country, if you were to go to Washington, D.C., if you've been to Washington, D.C., you know that the center of Washington, D.C., what everything flows towards is the capital. It's the preeminent point in all of Washington. In the same way, Jesus Christ is the preeminent person of all ages. All of history, past, and all of prophecy, future, revolves around Jesus Christ. He is above all others, like a mountain is above a molehill, like a skyscraper is above a dollhouse. Jesus Christ is preeminent. To be preeminent in the world means that he should be preeminent in our lives. Why? Because he's supreme. Because he's sovereign. Last week we began looking at this passage that Pastor Will just read. And, uh, and as I said last week, this is a marvelous hymn of the supremacy of God. This is a, one of the deepest uh, aspects or deepest passages of Scripture about Jesus Christ. Really one of the deepest passages of Scripture. It came true as we were discussing in our growth group this week. And one of the individuals in our growth group said something that I think almost all of us were thinking is that this passage hurts our head. Because to dwell on it, is, it, there's just so much ramifications from this passage. And last week we looked at the first three verses, looking at the idea that, that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is, is the eternal creator. Though he had a birth, yet he didn't have a birth. Though he had, uh, ha- had a death, yet he, he lives for all eternity. 
He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the highest rank. He's the highest priority. He holds all things together. This week we want to continue looking at Jesus' supremacy, but I want to look at it in a different way. Last week we looked at Jesus' supremacy over creation. He made everything. He holds everything together. But this week I want to look at Jesus' supremacy over redemption or over salvation. Verses, uh, uh, back to verse 13 of chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14 kind of lay the groundwork. This is kind of the prelude to the hymn of, of why the Lord is supreme and, and what He has done. It says in verse 13, He, that's God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, we talked about this, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. God reached down and took us and transferred us Though we were dead in our sins, though there was nothing we could do about it, he transferred us into the kingdom. Now, kingdoms have rulers. And the kingdom of, of God is, is, the ruler is God, but yet it calls it in this passage in verse 13, the kingdom of his beloved son, meaning that Jesus Christ is the ruler of this kingdom. He has all authority and he has all power. And so then, because he has all power, we see that what we talked about last week, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He created all things. He sustains all things. And this declaration of his uh, supremacy leads to a demand for his preeminence. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But Paul continues and adds on to this, and, and there's three aspects of Jesus that we want to look at today about his supremacy. First of all, Jesus is the ruling head of the body, which is the church. Now, it's interesting to note in verse 18, why I went and, uh, stopped at the end of verse 17 last week is because I think verse 18 is a change of theme. Uh, again, last week it was about creation and all he created and all he does with creation, but this week he shifts from creation or, or all of us as a whole to specifically believers in the church. Like I said, this is viewed by many as, a, as an early church hymn, these verses, and so you can look at it this way, okay? Verses 15 through 17 is verse 1 of the song. Verses uh, 18 through 20 are verse 2 of the song. And so he changes themes just a little bit, even though the overriding idea is the same. And what does he say in verse 18? He says he is the head of the body of the church. Now, this is the first time we really see this idea of church in this passage, uh, but we see the idea of the church being a body throughout uh, Paul's writings. Galatians talks about it, First and Second Thessalonians, Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians. Over and over again, we see in the Bible this idea that the church is the body of Christ. That's, that's something we see. In fact, uh, it says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, so we, though many, if you're a believer, you're part of this we, though many, are one body. We are one and individually members one of another. We are all part of this body. Imagine that uh, idea of a body. Now, we're not going to look there, but in Corinthians, Paul takes it a step further, and he talks about how we're all part of one body, and in that body, God gives each of us a separate function. And that function is used to contribute to the unity of the body. No gift, no aspect, no function is insignificant because all the body parts are essential. If you lose one of your own body parts, yes, you may adjust, but you will not function fully as you could if you had all those body parts. 
So we see here this idea of the body of Christ is not something new in Paul's writings, but he says something here that he doesn't say in a lot of the other uh, times he talks about the body of Christ. In verse 18 he says, he is the head of the body. Now this and in Ephesians, uh, uh, and there is some debate on which came first, but uh, these are the two places where he mentions this idea of head, and, and uh, it's, it's the first time it's referred to this way, but uh, it's a head. What does he mean by that? Well, I think there's really a couple ways we can look at this. Okay, the primary meaning of the word head refers to the physical part, the organic part of the body, right? Now I'm going to say something rather obvious here, okay? And and don't think that um, you know I'm I'm talking down to you, okay? We all have a head, and if your head is disconnected from your body, you die. Now, we had some debate in my house. My son read something that uh, said that back when they would do beheadings, they would pick up the head and, and show it to the crowd because they believed that you're, you would stay alive for eight seconds or you would be uh, aware of what was going on for eight seconds. I don't know if that's true, and I'm not going to test it out. Okay? But the reality is, is your head is very important for the function of, of your existence. And so when he talks about the head, we get that. It's, it's, but it's even more than that. Many times we'll say, someone will say, well, they lost their head. Well, they didn't really lose their head. What did they do? Okay? They, 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 they blew up and they responded in a way where they weren't using a lot of brain power. Or maybe uh, we'll, we'll say that we haven't used our heads today. And that's a reference to the most important part of our head that's located inside our skull, and that's our brain. And, and science has told us that the brain causes uh, and, and allows for growth and life in the body. It is because of the brain that you grow. It's the guidance system for the whole body. Without your brain, without your head, growth, life, movement, thought patterns, impulses, all cease to exist without your head. So when it says Jesus is the head of the body, then we understand from that that we derive life from him, health from him, existence from him, guidance from him. He is the one that causes the church to live and to grow. Now we, here we see in Ephesians, uh, Paul summarizes this idea of growth, and we're talking this whole year about growth, and so I want to look at this verse because he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head. What is our goal? Our goal is Christ-likeness. We're to grow up into Christ. We're to grow up into Christ-likeness. But notice what it says next. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Let me ask you this question. Who is that every joint? What is that referring to? It's referring to you and I. That's an interesting thought. Because the idea here is this, is that we are to grow up and as we grow spiritually, each part of the body has an impact on that. But it all is for the point of growing up by the head and through the head, Jesus Christ. You ever have an issue in your body and how it affects the whole body? Okay, I, I've been struggling with, uh, with the arthritis uh, that I, disease that I have. I've been struggling with pain in my Achilles. Okay? And it's just, you know, it drives me nuts. It's this little tiny thing on the back of your foot. And yet it can affect my whole body. And, and there's days where it's just like, man, that's so irritating. And it's just that little thing. Here's the question. In the body of Christ, is that you? 
Are you that painful Achilles that just, man, you just, you're not contributing to the health of the body? And here he says we are to grow up into God, and we do that by coming together, by joining together. Look at Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians, we see a similar idea. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 19, Paul says, And not holding fast to the head from, which the, uh, uh, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and the ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. This, this process of us coming together is, is seen there as we grow and we grow up to the head. So Jesus can be seen, when it talks about Jesus being the head of the church, he can be seen as this, the, the physical aspect of a head. But I think there's more than that to that, because when we see the idea of head, we also see the idea of a ruling authority. Uh, in, in Ephesians, Paul expresses his desire for the church to understand the authority of Jesus Christ, and he says this in Ephesians chapter 1, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of great might that he wrought, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? It's talking about God, but then it says he, he, he worked his great power in Jesus Christ. He raised him from the dead, and then what did he do? He seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age to come, but but not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then it goes on, he says, but he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things. So the idea of Christ being the head of the church, yes, there's that physical aspect that we, we receive our life and we grow in him, but there's also that ruling aspect that Jesus Christ is over all. What Jesus Christ does is absolutely uh, what we should be doing. It's absolutely clear that Jesus is the ruling authority over all of creation. We looked at that last week, but he's the ruling authority over all church, so that church is not and never should be dependent on anything but Jesus Christ. Church should not be become about our own opinions. It should be about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom, having all power and all dominion forever. And from him we receive all things. So we see here that Jesus is the head of the church. We could dwell on that more, but let's, let's move on. Secondly, Jesus is the assurance of our resurrection. He continues on in verse 18, and he says this, He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now remember, back in verse 15, we said he was the firstborn of what? In verse 15, it said he was the firstborn of all creation. Now, we mentioned that he did not have a, uh, a, a physical creation because he was eternally with the Father from everlasting. He has always existed. We talked about that last week. And so that firstborn of all creation refers to the idea that he is of highest honor and rank over all creation. But here then, he says, okay, uh, he, he, uh, he was the beginning of the, the idea of all that is, uh, was created, and he'll live forever. But having died for our sins now, it takes us to the next step further, and it says he's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Well, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection are the only assurance we have of our own resurrection. Look what it says in Peter. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to live, 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The only possible way that we have hope that we will be resurrected. You know, someone comes to you and says, hey, what do you believe happens when you die? And you say, well, I, I believe I go to heaven. Well, how do you know that? Because you might have a neighbor who says, when you die, you die, and that's it, and there's nothing else. How do you know you resurrect? My only hope, my only assurance of that is that Jesus Christ already did it. Look what it says in Corinthians, what Paul says. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We looked at this passage on, on, on Easter. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want to explain this, this idea of first fruits here. Because I think the word picture of first fruits that we see helps us understand this better. What, what was the first fruits? In the Old Testament, God instituted something called the first fruits giving. Okay? Uh, they lived in an agricultural society, and so it's a lot different than today. Uh, um, and, uh, but the first fruits giving was the idea of what we call the tithe. It was giving the first, what they called 10%, or uh, the, the New Testament doesn't uh, give us an exact amount, but it is the idea of giving uh, first from what we have to God. But the first fruits is an interesting one, because as an agricultural society, they would plant their crops, they would water their crops, they would tend to their crops, and then one day the harvest would begin, and, and a lot of times what would happen is, is you get this first bit of the harvest, not all the crops were in, not all the crops were there, not all the fruit was mature, but this first bit. And so the idea was they were to take that first bit and they were to take it and give it to God. Now that took faith, didn't it? Because what if they gave that first 10%, that first bit to God, and the rest of the crop didn't come up? They were in trouble. But God taught them that because he wanted them to understand something. He wanted them to understand that giving is something that happens, and, and it's something that happens by faith. And so the first fruits of the crop was something that you would give with a hope. Not a, Pastor Nate talked about this in our Sunday school class today, not a hope like we think of today, like, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. But No, but a, a, a confident assurance that it will take place. I know that this is going to take place. It's, it's a promise of something more. Now, in the same way, Jesus is a first fruit of the resurrection in this, that it's saying that, yes, Jesus died and he rose again, and that's a promise to us it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen with those who believe in him. Because Jesus has risen and conquered death in the same way all who believe in his work can rest from their worry and expect God to provide our own resurrection one day. And so the bodily eternal resurrection is a, is a guarantee of our own resurrection. That's a beautiful picture. And so here when Paul says, hey, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, is a promise. But here's the sad reality. And, and Romans, we, we, we're in this passage just this morning in Sunday school. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Every person who lives on this earth, man or woman, will die. 
And we will die in our sins. We will die because we have sins, I should say, and, and the, is the product of sin. But Jesus Christ lays a hope. See, in 1 Corinthians it says this, For as, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This does not mean that the whole world will be saved. But that in Christ all who believe will not die, but will have eternal life. Not one will slip away who believes the truth. That's a comfort. So we go back to our passage and he says this in verse 18, He is the head. He is overall, he is the, the life giver, he is also the ruling authority over all things. He is also the firstborn of the dead. He is the assurance that that will happen. And then look what he says at the end of verse 18. I'm just going to touch on this now, but I'm going to expand on it later. He says at the end of verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. All the way back to verse 15, he is, he is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is uh, he created all things, everything on earth. He sustains all things, and it is for him that they are created. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. And all of that is true so that he is preeminent. Now we'll get to more, more about that later because Paul doesn't stop. Because what does he say next in verse 19? He says, for... And he adds to that. It's like he's saying, hey, uh, I have all these things, but I, I, I want to add to that. I want to give you some more reasons. And so we want to look at uh, what he says next, because uh, then he says, for, in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We talked about this uh, last week, and we're going to talk about this again as we get into Colossians more. He talks about this more in chapter 2. But uh, he says there, Jesus possesses all the fullness of God. Um, the original meaning of this word fullness was the idea of a ship that was going out into sea and it was just leaving the, the port and it was fully loaded with sailors and rowers and supplies and food and cargo, so much so that there was no room for anything else. And the idea of Jesus being full is, in this sense is that he does not lack one attribute of God a, a, at all. There's no way he could have added any more attributes of God because he has them all. As Jesus eternally exists, he exercises, that's how he can exercise the power of creation uh, because he possesses all the fullness of God. But then he goes on and says this, that now that he explained that, he says in verse 20, and through him, through this Jesus who, who possesses all of God, to reconcile to himself all things. The third aspect we want to look at today is Jesus alone provides reconciliation. But what does that mean? What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is a financial term. Okay? Uh, it's a financial term that, that basically it's a process of assuring that two sets of records usually balances of accounts, agree. Um, when you go and you balance your checking account, what you are doing is you are reconciling that what you have down that you spent is what the bank says you have spent. And we hope they agree. Recently, for some reason that we are not totally clear on, uh, we have church uh, credit cards that we as staff use, and for some reason... Uh, recently, all three of us pastoral staff members, our credit cards have been hacked and, and we've had 
erroneous charges. And we have to look and go, wait, we didn't do this. And so we've been able to take care of those. That is reconciling those accounts to making sure that they are accurate. Making sure that the money leaving your account matches with the actual money spent. But here it's even a little bit different than that because this word reconcile is the idea of an exchange. And so it's, it's in Paul's day they would travel and, and when they would travel in every little place they went, everywhere had different currency and so they would have to exchange their currency. We do that today. I've been out of the country numerous times and every time I go out of the country you've got to exchange and you've got to go and make sure that it's accurate. Just recently I was at the bank and while I was at the bank the person at the teller next to me was getting ready to head out of the country and she was saying to the teller, oh, I have all, she was going to, I think she was going to Europe and she had all these euros and she said, how do I know how much I'm spending in comparison to American dollar? And he said, well, you've got to look at it and you've got to figure out what the exchange rate is so that you can uh, know that you're, um, you know, being charged the right amount. Um, she said, I don't want to do that. And he said, well... <laughs> and you might get ripped off. And that's the idea of this of reconciling, is the exchanging, make sure it's equivalent. What does that relate to us then spiritually? In the spiritual sense, sinful man owes God a tremendous and impossible debt because of his sin. One sinful act makes you guilty of treason against God. The Bible says if you commit one sin, you're guilty of all. One sinful act means you committed treason against God. And so as that, it makes you sinful to the very core of who you are. We often like to dwell on, well, we're, we're good people. No, one Sinful act. And our hearts and our desires long after that defect in our soul, which the Bible calls sin. We long for it. We desire it. We want it. And Romans tells us, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned, every single person has sinned, and because of that, we fall short of the glory of God. We can never reconcile the account with God. It is always going to be off. There's nothing we can do, there's no exchange rate that's going to help us reconcile that account with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that we looked at a few minutes ago, said that because of that sin, then death came to all men, because all have sinned. And sin estranges us from God. Sin makes us so we're at odds with God. Uh, we're enemies with God. And sin cannot be a part of who God is. And so to be reconciled with God means that Jesus has to settle our accounts. We can't do it ourselves. And so Jesus breaks down that wall of hostility between us and God, and he becomes sin for us. He takes on our sin. He takes on all of those debts on our account, and he puts them on himself. And then he turns and he gives us his righteousness. And that's why it says there in this passage in verse 20, it says, And through him to be reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. It's, it's such a beautiful picture of reconciliation. 
that I think it's hard for us to completely grasp. That the only way peace comes is by Jesus laying down his life of his own accord and shedding his blood so that we can be reconciled. Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace, and that is why, because he is our peace offering and we're no longer separated from God. And the requirement by God to enjoy an unbroken relationship with him is perfect obedience, and we will never achieve that. But Jesus did. So that the, the other aspect of, of reconciliation is the idea of atonement. And we see that at the end of the verse but when it says, how, what was the payment? What was the, the, the cost of reconciliation? The blood of Jesus Christ. Atonement is the paying for the wrong. Because Jesus lived the perfect life, He can qualify as the perfect sacrifice for sin. So our debts can be paid. And so because of what Jesus Christ did, we are declared not guilty. Not by reason of our own merit, but by the payment of Jesus' blood. So we're reconciled. The beautiful picture of that in Romans when it says this, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, verses 15 through 20 talk about this supremacy of, of Jesus Christ, that he is over all. He is, but even more than just being overall in the sense of this large cosmic sense, he is over you. And everything that he has done is, is, is for his glory, but also for your reconciliation with God. But what does that mean then? Go back to verse 18. He says, all this is that what? That in everything... He might be preeminent in everything. What does preeminent mean? Some of you are saying, I've heard that word now, but I don't understand what it means. That word preeminent is the idea of a paramount rank, dignity, or importance. In simple, what that means is that in everything, Jesus should be first in priority. So what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for our daily lives? If all of these things are true, which they are, Jesus is supreme, then what does that mean for me? Well, let me ask you this question. Are you living in reality? A number of years ago, I don't remember where I was at. It was a store somewhere. I think it was in this area. I think it was when I was here. But I was behind a man, and he was... You ever get in the line behind someone, and they're, they're constantly talking? And I don't mean like a good talking, like, hey, we can have a good t- conversation here, but a talking where you're like, all right, enough. <laughs> This guy was talking, and he began telling everyone around him that, some things, and as I was listening, I slowly started stepping back because I got very worried for who this man was. Because he said to the person in front of him, he said, started telling him that he realized that his neighbor was from another galaxy. I kid you not, that's what he said. My neighbor is from another galaxy. And that's when I started going, okay, uh, very good. Then he began to go on and he said, in fact, I think much of our world is from another galaxy. In fact, I think that all of our politicians are from other planets. Okay, 
Well, that may explain a lot about our politicians, but that is not actually the truth. Okay, and so he's saying here these things, and I'm sitting there going, you are out of touch with reality, buddy. (laughs) But the same is true for us. If you are living as Jesus not being the number one priority in your life, then you are not in touch with reality. Because Jesus is preeminent. The question is, are you putting him in that place in your life? And so when we talk about this idea of of preeminent, the question I want to ask you is, how are you applying this to your life? Do you really love Jesus? Is Jesus really in control of your life? And I wanted to, not for the sake of stepping on toes, but I wanted to just give you some practical application of what I mean by that. Okay, so I have six things that we can talk about, and really I could have made 20, but six areas of our life that we want to talk about. The first one is work. Does Jesus have first place in your life based on the way you conduct yourself at work? Does he? Is he the number one consideration when you make career choices? Or is it, yeah, it's a better paying job must be what God wants? Or is Jesus the number one consideration? Do you work with an ethical value in the way that you work that shows that, the right, that Jesus has the right place in your life? I'm amazed how many times I hear about Christians who do not, uh, do not work with uh, ethics as a part of the way they live their life in their workplace. Secondly, how about our free time? Or I could have just put time. But is, is his preeminence evidence in the way that you spend your time? Is his preeminence evidence when you turn on your Netflix? Is his preeminence evidenced by the music that you listen to or, or, or the entertainment that you do or what you do in your free time? Uh, uh, you know, we, we often say, yes, I believe that Jesus is overall. I believe all this, uh, but it doesn't play out in the way that we live our life so often. And preeminence means, yes, everything in my life, he should be preeminent. How about the area of budget? Does Jesus have first place in your budget? talked about first fruits later. Is that application for you? Or is it that uh, giving comes only if I have enough at the end of my budget? I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, and, and back to the society that the Jews lived in, uh, you know, and the crops are come and, and I, I, I harvest all of my crops and I, and I pay my uh, workers and I pay this and I get to the very end and I go, yeah, I got, I got a couple berries. Here you go. Here you go, God. If that is your attitude, then Jesus is not first place in your life. How about church involvement? Does your church attendance reflect the fact that Jesus is the most important person in your life? Or are there everything else that's more important? How about your involvement in service? Serving God, does it show that Jesus is first place? Or outreach, 
That's a hard one. Man, you, you know you need to talk to the person next door or the person uh, at the, uh, the grocery store or the person that you come in contact with or your family, but out of fear and out of your own personal love for yourself, we don't, do, do we? How about your desire to grow? Does it show that? Your involvement in, in growth opportunities here at our church, growth group or, or Sunday school, does it show that Jesus is most important in your life? How about next, your family? Does it, does it affect the way that you interact with your spouse? Pastor Nate touched on this in Sunday school, but I, I think it's, it's so true. We often, we often have the wrong, wrong mindset when it comes to that. Oh, my, my wife and my kids should be the number one thing in my life. No, Jesus should be. And sometimes that means, sometimes that, means that we make choices that are, are, are we know is what Jesus wants us to do, but you know what? It might not be the best what our family wants. Sometimes we make hard choices, and that's, uh, this is what Jesus wants, kids. You might not. You're not my number one priority. Because Jesus is preeminent in my life. How about our relationship with our parents or our siblings or anyone else in our family? Is Jesus, does our life reflect that Jesus is preeminent? The final one we could look at is our Bible study. Does the preeminence of Christ reflect itself in the amount of time or the quality of time you spend pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ? Uh, I just... I just didn't have time this week. I get that. But if Jesus is preeminent, then we do have time. We could talk about many other ways. Does, Jesus, the, does the preeminence of Christ reflect itself in, in your conversations? Is it a priority to talk about? You see, by the very nature, the preeminence of Christ is all-encompassing. It leaves nothing in your life untouched. And it shouldn't leave anything in your life untouched. If you are a believer here today and you say, yes, I believe that Jesus saved me. I believe that he reconciled me. I believe that he created me. I believe he is the head of this church. I believe all that, but no, he is not first place in my life. And you're lying to yourself. And you're not living in a way that is pleasing to God. It is possible for us, just like the, the Colossian believers that Paul is, was writing to, it is possible for us to be enamored with ourself, with the world, with so many other things, with other philosophies, with other teachings, to the point that uh, we do not put Christ as first. But we need to set aside those other things. We need to say, yep, yep, you know what? Yeah, those are, you know, Paul talks about the idea of those things that are good, but not best. Jesus Christ is best. And maybe you're here today and, and you come to the realization, you know, I, I haven't been making Jesus preeminent in my life. Confess. Come to him in confession. Maybe you're here today, and, and I, I've been hitting on this the last few weeks because I believe it's, it's probably true. Maybe you're here today and you have not come to a place where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only chance of a resurrection in Christ. You can do that today.
You can do that today. You can come to that point where you can say, Jesus, I'm not trusting in myself because there is no way I can reconcile my relationship with God, but I am trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross, shedding his blood. And you can do that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at this passage, we see this beautiful picture of who your son is. God, sometimes our world wants to just make him a a mere man or, or make him a good teacher and make him all these things. But Lord, we look at this and we see he is, he is so... He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is the head of the church. He is the only way that I can be reconciled with you. He's the only way I can even come and talk to you now, Lord. And yet you desire for me to make him first place. And I know, Lord, there are many times in my life where he is not. Maybe I say he is or I want him to be. but I allow other things to creep into my life. Good things even, but not the best. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us if we truly believe who Jesus is, that we will make him the preeminent being in our life around which everything else flows. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, if there's any here that have not come to salvation, I pray that today they will do that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.